Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We're currently walking verse by verse through the book of 1 John. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Hey, before we jump in tonight, I want to give you just a little preview about where we're going over the next few weeks. Next Sunday, we start our final series in our study through the book of 1 John. Have you enjoyed the book of 1 John this year? Amen. Well, next Sunday, we start our final series. It's going to be a three-part series. Pastor Vance is going to be back to kick off that series. And then we are going to conclude the book of 1 John. And then on September the 10th, when we transition to a new Sunday service schedule, we're actually going to be starting a brand new teaching series as a church. So I hope you'll plan to be here over the next few weeks as we conclude this wonderful New Testament letter and launch a brand new series as a church. Uh, this week, I read a very interesting story about a convenience store that was broken into. But oddly enough, the person who broke into the convenience store did not steal anything. When the person broke into the store, they did do something, though. They changed all of the price tags on all of the items in the convenience store. So here's what happens. The owner shows up the next day not knowing at all that something had happened. And a little earlier in, in the morning, a customer walks up to the register and they have a normal wooden hammer. And the customer says to the owner, I would like to purchase this hammer. And so the owner takes the scanner and scans the price tag on the hammer. And up on the register screen, it says $500. And the customer was obviously blown away. And so the owner corrected that. And they both just went along with their business. A little bit later that morning, a customer walked up to the register with a flat screen television. And so once again, the owner scanned the price tag on the flat screen television, and the screen on the register said $14.95. And it was at that point that the owner realized something was very, very wrong. And throughout the morning, more and more people came to purchase items, and as that happened, more and more confusion was created until ultimately, later in the afternoon, the owner had to shut down the store to get all of the price tags within the store correct. Here's the point of that story. When values get mixed up, life gets messed up. So we must be sure our price tags are right. You see, the value that we place on things around us ultimately determine how we view the world. 
And as disciples of Jesus, the reason that we sing with passion, the reason we pray with passion, the reason that we sit under the teaching of the word of God is because we believe Jesus is the only one who is worthy of the highest value. I love the way that Joseph Stoll said it in his book, Simply Jesus. You simply cannot exaggerate when you are speaking of his worth. He belongs in the place of preeminence. As a church family, we're studying right now through the New Testament book of 1 John. And tonight, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is all about the value and the worth of Jesus. And I'll be honest and tell you that the the passage we're going to look at tonight is extremely complex. And so in order for all of us to understand kind of the big theme of this passage, I want to begin tonight by reading the bookends. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 12 of 1 John chapter 5. So as we begin tonight, I want to read verse 5, and I want to read verse 12, so we can see kind of an overall theme in this passage of Scripture. So let's look at these two verses. First of all, here's the first verse in our passage tonight. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then here's the final verse in our passage tonight. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The overall theme of our passage today is around eternal life being found in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, depending on your background you may hear a phrase like eternal life and have a lot of different meanings that come to your mind. I personally believe that the clearest and simplest definition of eternal life is found in John chapter 17 and verse 3. I want to show it to you. Here's what John wrote in his gospel. This is eternal life. He's about to define it. That they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In its simplest form, eternal life is knowing God. And as we unpack that reality today, I want to give you a clarifying statement to make sure we are all on the same page when it comes to defining this reality of eternal life. Look at this statement. Eternal life is not in a place or process. It is in a person. Eternal life, this unbelievable reality that we enjoy as believers, it's not in a place or a process. It is in a person and his name is Jesus. You see, there are a lot of misconceptions out there when it comes to eternal life. For example, some people associate eternal life with a place. However, eternal life isn't really about a location. Eternal life is more than heaven when we die. 
Eternal life begins not when this life is over, but when we become a part of God's family. Eternal life is not a place. Now, it includes heaven, and that's a great part of it, but that is not all eternal life is. There are other people who would say eternal life is about works. They associate eternal life with what they do. However, eternal life isn't something I can earn by what I do. It's not a process. It's not me trying to earn God's acceptance or good graces. There was a New York Times article about Michael Bloomberg. And this former mayor of New York City said that the work done by his administration had earned him God's approval. Here was his exact statement. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It is not even close. You see, he was deceived into thinking that gaining heaven or gaining eternal life is about what a person can do. But that goes in direct contradiction to what the word of God is about. Because eternal life is not in a process. It's not about the works that I do or the moral living that I achieve. One other misconception about eternal life is this. Some people associate it with knowledge. But eternal life isn't something I can attain by what I know. You see, there are not enough Books or Bible studies or seminary courses that a person can take in order to attain eternal life. And once again, here's why. Because eternal life is not in a place or process. It is in a person. And his name is Jesus. Amen? So what I want to do with that in mind is I now want to read this entire passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter 5. And then we're going to draw some principles out of it. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 5 says this. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. So we see these two bookends in this passage around eternal life being found in Jesus. And what we see in verses 6 through 11 are all of these examples why there is absolutely no one who is like Jesus. 
So I want to give you a big truth as we look at this passage tonight, and then I want to give you four reasons why there is absolutely no one like Jesus. So here is, here's a big truth for us today. The only way to experience eternal life is through a relationship with Jesus. The only way for a person to experience eternal life is through a relationship with Jesus. I love what Charles Stanley said. He said, eternal life is irrevocably linked to the person of Jesus. That's the big truth that all of us must wrap our hearts around today. So to unpack some of the details within this passage, I want to share with you four reasons why there is absolutely no one like Jesus. And here's the first reason. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. The first thing that John does here in verse 6 is he basically says this. You want to know why there's absolutely no one like Jesus? First of all, look at what happened at his baptism. The reference to water in verse 6 is referring to the baptism of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. Now, just from a Bible study standpoint, people read that and they have a very honest question. Why was Jesus baptized? Why was the Son of God baptized? And that is a great question. Well, he was not baptized to publicly declare that he had repented of sin because Jesus was sinless. The event of Jesus' baptism marked the beginning of his public ministry as the Messiah who had come to identify with sinful humanity. Before Jesus began his public ministry, there was a man who went before him named John the Baptist. And John was preaching repentance and, and faith in the coming Messiah. And in the, in the Gospels, you read this story, but John was teaching one day, and he saw Jesus walking toward him. And John stops mid-sermon and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus walked up to John, and he said, John, I want you to baptize me. And the scripture records that when Jesus was baptized, when he came up out of the water, that he saw the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God descend like a dove upon him. And a voice out of heaven said this, the voice of God the Father. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. And this moment of Jesus' baptism was, yes, an affirmation of the ministry of John the Baptist. But even more than that, it marked the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ the Messiah. After being on earth for 30 years, it was finally time for Jesus to begin his public ministry. And his baptism was an unbelievable evidence of that. The first reason that there's nobody who's like Jesus is because Jesus is the Messiah. The second reason that John gives is this. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. The second thing John says, in essence, is this. You want to know why there's absolutely no one who's like Jesus? Look at what happened at his death. 
You see, while the reference to water highlights the milestone of the beginning of his earthly ministry, the blood that is mentioned in verse 6 is a reference to his death and the end of his earthly ministry. The death of Jesus on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for sin was another incredibly significant event. We don't have time to walk through all the details of it. You can read that in your small group or during your God time. But let me just read a couple of things that happened when Jesus died. There was darkness across the land from noon until 3 p.m. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. An earthquake took place. People were raised from the dead. Each of these have significance, but they're all centered around the debt for humanity being paid through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as the final payment for the sin of the world. Mark wrote about this in his gospel in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Here's what he said. For even the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a question that comes to mind for me as I read that verse is this. Who are the many? Well, it's the world. You see, God loves the world. And he sent his son to be a payment, to be a ransom for the world because we were separated for all eternity from God because of our sin. And Jesus stepped in to be the savior because as humanity, we needed saving. And I pray that we would realize even today the magnitude of the fact that Jesus is the savior. And that for us as believers, yes, we will experience conviction of sin, but we will never know the full punishment for sin because that was all poured out on Jesus. Are you thankful today that Jesus is the Savior? Amen? And it's amazing to see as you read through the Scripture and you read through the Gospels, You see that the father was satisfied with the payment for sin that Jesus laid down with his life. Because on the third day, by the power of God, Jesus was brought back to life, showing that the final payment for sin had been taken care of. And now Jesus stands as a victorious Savior, inviting all those who would put their faith in his finished work and his life to be born again and to experience eternal life. The first reason that there's nobody like Jesus is because he's the Messiah. The second reason is because he is the Savior. Here's the third reason that we see in verse 6, that there is absolutely no one like Jesus. Jesus is the truth about God. Thus far, John has referenced the water. He's referenced the blood. And now, in verse 6, he references the Spirit. And by referencing the witness of the Spirit, John is emphasizing that Jesus was affirmed, empowered, and magnified by the Holy Spirit of God. We see the activity of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' birth, in his baptism, in his teaching, and throughout his entire ministry. 
I want to take just a moment and give you just a couple of foundational realities as we think about the Holy Spirit of God today. And here's the first one. The Holy Spirit always reveals the truth. The Holy Spirit of God always reveals the truth. John wrote about this in his gospel in John chapter 16 and verse 3. He said this, when he, the spirit of truth, or the Holy Spirit of God comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So just on a foundational level today, we can all understand that the Holy Spirit of God always reveals the truth. But secondly, the Holy Spirit always has and always will magnify Jesus. The Holy Spirit always has and always will magnify Jesus. Throughout history, the Spirit of God has magnified the Son of God. And here's what the Spirit has said. Jesus is who he says he is. We see it throughout his entire ministry, and we even see it today. The Holy Spirit pointing people to realize that Jesus Christ is who he says that he is. Well, that begs an important question for us. Who did Jesus claim to be? Well, I believe one of the boldest things that Jesus ever said is recorded in John chapter 14 and verse 6. Look at this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus boldly said, he is the way to God, the truth about God, and the very life of God. I think it's interesting as you look at our nation, there are a large percentage of people in America who would say that they believe in God. If we just did a normal survey, most people would say something like, yes, absolutely, I believe in God. However, when you survey those same people, a large portion of them would say that there is no one belief system that can encompass the fullness of spiritual truth. But when you look at the scripture and you look at the claims of Jesus, here's what he said. He said, I am the truth and there is no other. Notice he used the word I. Here's why. Because truth is a person. In, in essence, Jesus said, I am the reality of God in your midst. That's what he taught, that's what he preached, and that's what the Spirit of God affirmed. One of the most common questions that I'm asked as a pastor is this, what is God like? Pastor, you apparently have some direct connection to God. I don't know what it looks like, a bat phone or something. But you, you know about God. So tell me, tell me, what is God like? Well, in reality, I don't have to answer that question because Jesus already did. Listen to what Jesus said a little bit later on in John chapter 14 and verse 9. Jesus said this, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He said, listen, when you see me, you see everything that the Father is. Jesus said, when you see the way I lead, the way I love, the way I care for people, you are looking at God in the flesh. And as we consider 
the full counsel of Scripture, here's the conclusion. Jesus is God, and he reveals to the world exactly what God is like. I love what R. Kent Hughes said about this topic. He said, we need look to no one except Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. As we see him in the Gospels and hear him preach, we can know what God is like. If you want to know what God is really like, just look at Jesus. Jesus tells us what God is like. One of the places in the scripture that really clarifies this is in Hebrews chapter 1. Here's what the Bible says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Listen to this. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. If you want to know what God is like, simply look at Jesus. And that's why we can't simply say Jesus is a good teacher, a good leader, or a moral person. He is the Son of God. And in both the past and the present, the Holy Spirit of God has affirmed Jesus Christ as the truth about God. That's why there is no one who is like Jesus. And then John continues in this passage to talk about the water and the blood and the spirit as three witnesses that are giving testimony. And he's, he's kind of painting this picture of a courtroom when all of the evidence is being brought forth. And he's saying this, when you look at the water and the blood and the spirit, you see three witnesses giving one big conclusion, and here it is. Jesus is the Son of God, and there is nobody who is like him. But there's one more reason that I, I want to look at in this passage why there is no one who is like Jesus. And here's the fourth one. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the truth about God. And he is the resurrection and the life. Let's read verse, verses 11 and 12 one more time. Verse 11 says, and this is, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. One of the, the clearest places in scripture to tell us if we are going to experience eternal life, it will only happen through a relationship with Jesus Christ. As you study the teachings of Jesus, here's what you see. You see him talking much more about spiritual life and death than he really taught about physical life and death. And here's why. Because every person will spend forever somewhere. And based on our response to Jesus, that will determine if we spend eternity spiritually alive or spiritually dead. 
I love what Ray Stedman said in his book, Life by the Son. The whole point of the matter is that God has given to man the thing he lacks, eternal life. Not life in quantity, although it does include that, it is endless life, but primarily life in quality. Life abundant, life exciting, life that is lived to the fullest. That is God's gift to man. But here's what it all boils down to. What is our response to Jesus? What is our response to this invitation from the Son of God who died on a cross as the sacrifice for humanity and was brought back to life on the third day and now stands inviting us to know him and experience life the way he designed it. For us, everything boils down to our response to him. You see, I believe that we were not put on earth to be remembered. We were put here to prepare for eternity. And so as we prepare for a time right now of response, I want to ask two very simple questions. And here's the first one. Are you following Jesus? As you sit there tonight, do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you have a love relationship with Jesus Christ? Has there been a time in your life when you have acknowledged before God that you are sinful And because of that sin, there's no way that you can have a relationship or you can have access to him. Have you acknowledged that before him? And then have you confessed that you need saving, that you need rescue? Because the Bible tells us when we will cry out to him and confess our sin and we'll put our faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering our life to him, the Bible says that he'll save us. And we can be born again into a relationship with God. But the question is, are you following Jesus? If you're here and you would say, Pastor, honestly, I'm not. I've been in church. I know some of the worship songs. But, but I don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. In just a few moments, when we stand and sing a song of response, I want to invite you to make your way here to the front and just walk up to one of our pastors and say, I need Jesus. And we would love to connect you with someone who can sit down and show you from the Bible how you can be born again into a relationship with God. So that's the first question. Are you following Jesus? Here's a second question tonight. If you do know him, If you are a disciple, are you pursuing Jesus? If there's been a time in your life when you've confessed your sin and you've given your life to Christ and you are a Jesus follower, as you look at your life today, is there a pursuit of him? Because if he is really of the greatest value and it is only through him that we can experience eternal life, and our created purpose, then why would Jesus Christ not be the ultimate pursuit of our lives? I read a story this week 
about a gentleman who had dinner with Dr. Billy Graham. And this dinner happened several years ago. Dr. Graham was around the age of 80. And this person asked Dr. Graham, of all your experiences in ministry, what have you enjoyed the most? And this person said, was it meeting presidents or heads of state? And he began to list all these accomplishments that are on Dr. Graham's resume. And very quickly, Dr. Graham stopped him and said, none of that. And here's what Dr. Graham said. By far, the greatest joy of my life has been my fellowship with Jesus. Hearing him speak to me, having him guide me, sensing his presence with me and his power through me, this has been the highest pleasure of my life. It's important for us as disciples to make sure that the thing that is of the greatest value for us is our personal love relationship with Jesus. And here's why. Because there is absolutely no one who is like Jesus. I want to invite you to bow your head tonight. We're going to transition to some time of response. As you sit there before the Lord, I want to ask you, how is God speaking to you? As we've walked through this entire service, what, what's on your heart? Are you here today and you know that you don't have a love relationship with God, but you desire one? Your response tonight is simple. It's to come and talk to someone about what it looks like to begin a relationship with God. Our pastors are going to be here at the front. We would love to talk to you about that if that is your response tonight. For others of us who know Christ, maybe you've been challenged tonight in terms of your pursuit of Jesus. Maybe God has given you some clarity around what eternal life is really all about. Maybe there's an aspect of who God is that you've just not been celebrating or realizing. Maybe there's a need in your life that is physical or financial or you have a relationship issue of some sort. During this time of response, these are, these are free moments for us to respond to God. Maybe you need a pastor to pray for you. Maybe you want to come forward on these steps as many did this morning and just kneel down and be alone with God. My hope is that in whatever way God is speaking to you, that you would respond in obedience. Lord, we set aside these moments every Sunday because, Lord, we believe that when we have communicated truth, it demands a response. And so, God, we want to respond to you now. Lord, would you give us grace as we sing, as we listen, as we pray. Lord, as we do all the things that are about to happen, Lord, I pray that in these moments, you would be honored. And Lord, our hearts and our lives would reflect that you are of the greatest worth. You are of the greatest value. And Lord, there is no one who is like you. 
Speak to us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. I'm going to invite you to stand up now as our team leads us in a song.